couple hours ago I was potential dirt to you. We're not like that. You all are. Know what I was really thinking? Why well, I don't drop both of you in my wake right now. You got nothing I need. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 59 and 60, which begin with Enola finding the Mariner's treasure grotto and end with a naked Helen holding a gun. We are pushing into the one hour mark of this movie as Enola explores below deck. An hour. Oh my gosh. The pacing of this movie is so weird. Yeah. Because it feels like the guts of the story is just getting started. Mm -hmm. It's an hour into it. We are a third of the way through this movie. It's weird to think in those terms. Movie's three hours? It is 178 minutes. Oh. Which is two minutes shy of a full three hours. Okay. Yes, it is. (laughs) Fancy math in my head. Yeah. We pick up this week with Enola. She is staring wide-eyed in childlike wonder at all of the knickknacks that the Mariner has accumulated inside of his boat. I was looking at these shots, and I just figured, hey, I will list off all of the stuff that I can see. Okay. About two seconds in, we get the first shot of knickknacks. We've got a sink stopper, the jaws of a fairly small shark, a toy soldier, a tiny piano, what I'm pretty sure is an egg crate divider, and probably a sun catcher of some kind, something that would hang in a window. I appreciate that he grabbed the sink stopper, because rubber's probably pretty hard to come by. Oh, there's no way that rubber has any integrity left. It's probably very brittle. Although rubber in Waterworld wouldn't dry out the same way. No, but but salt just eats things. Yeah, the salt would get into it, so... Don't rely on it having a good seal, is what we're saying. Yes, which he doesn't. It's (laughs) an ornament for him. He's got it hanging from the ceiling. I can't tell if the toy soldier was any sort of G.I. Joe because it is so corroded. It looks more like a tin soldier. Yeah, I actually thought that it was more like a a medieval soldier rather Mm. than like a modern day soldier. Like a knight? Yeah, like wearing armor. It's so corroded, it looks like he's wearing armor. But upon a closer look, he's holding a gun. Yeah, I looked at it, and it appeared to be a... I don't know if there's a proper term for the helmets that look a bit like rounded-off bowls. Yeah, the World War I-type helmets. Yeah, that's what it looked like. I'm sure there is a term for those. Wikipedia tells me that that's called a Brody helmet. Okay. I appreciate that the tiny piano has survived so well. It looks like something out of a dollhouse. It does. Is it made of wood? It appears to be wood. How did that survive? That seems weird. It does. And it doesn't seem discolored at all. I'm trying to think, is that something that would be painted? Yes. And the color has peeled off of it. I think it would have been painted, and that paint is now gone. It's weird to think that the Mariner would look at that and have no idea what it is. Right. Unless he 
saw it in a book. Right, but they can't read, so he still wouldn't know what it was. That's a good point. And there's no way to see a video of someone playing a piano. Although a picture of someone playing the piano does give you clues about what it might be. But what it might sound like, no idea. I suppose that having the divider from an egg crate would be useful for organizing small items. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised he's not using it in that way. But other than that, I don't know. Because that's an actually useful item. Yeah. I mean, the sun catcher hanged out above deck. Don't leave it down in the dark. Yeah. At at first, I was like, what? What is he doing? But he's got stuff above decks. Yeah. He has a plethora of items, so much so that he does not need another ornamental sun catcher type item above decks. He doesn't want to appear kitschy. Right. There's such thing as taste and class, even in the post-apocalypse. Exactly. He doesn't want people to sail by and think that he's from Florida. (laughs) Okay, that's a good point. People sailing by. If you put a sun catcher, a proper sun catcher out there, it would catch people's eyes further away than necessary for just a non-super reflective ship. So that's probably why he doesn't have it upstairs. (laughs) Because the decorative things he does have up there are not super reflective. They're nuts and bolts and faucets and doodads. Mm -hmm. Moving on to another shot, we get a very grody looking mailbox. Very grody looking mailbox. Bits of discoloration from oxidation and rust and what I can only assume is dirt and algae. I am tickled that the flag is still on it, though. Oh, of course. Because... It's not the most sturdy part of a mailbox, that little flag. It's the first thing that I would assume would snap off. Right? So the fact that it's still there, I think, is a little humorous. (laughs) Do you believe that the thing next to the mailbox is a stethoscope? Because that's what I labeled it as. Oh, honestly, I didn't really take a look at it because I was so distracted by the other thing in the shot. Oh, you mean the little Fabergé egg? Yeah, the Fabergé egg. So cutting back to the tubing. It does have a cut on it. It's definitely like a medical tubing thing. Mm-hmm. But if it is a stethoscope, it's like an old school stethoscope. Yeah. It's not a modern day to us stethoscope. It's got the two earpieces and then the listening bit, it splits off. And so you've got the two separate tubes that go to the two separate earpieces. It's odd looking. It is odd looking. It looks like an old timey piece of medical equipment. But moving on to the more luxurious element of this <laughs> shot, you said that you looked up Fabergé eggs. I did. I Partly because I've never really known what the deal was with Fabergé eggs. The extent of my knowledge of them was, hey, these are fancy eggs and they are very valuable. But that was it. So I took the opportunity to look up, and this is just the Wikipedia article. This was not some fancy deep dive. Fabergé eggs are Russian. They are from the House of Fabergé, meaning they are not necessarily produced by Peter Fabergé. They are supervised by Peter Fabergé. So I always thought that a lot like, let's say, Van Gogh, that if it wasn't painted directly by Van Gogh, then it's not a Van Gogh. If it was painted by a student of his, well, then it's not a Van Gogh. It's some other guys. But not so. If 
they were employed in the house of Fabergé, then it is a Fabergé egg. And they are from between 1885 and 1917. They were produced mostly for the czars of Russia at the time, Alexander III, Nicholas II, who liked to give them as gifts to wives and mothers. There are some that were created for other people. They are not as fancy or as highly regarded, but they are Fabergé eggs. The one that we see in the movie, I was hoping for some direct reference. Eh, not so much. And I think we see this with a lot of the Fabergé egg out in media, is that Mm -hmm. they're not necessarily showing us a particular Fabergé egg. They're showing us something that is Fabergé egg-esque. This navy and gold is a common theme on Fabergé eggs. And this crisscrossing diamond pattern, I think, is inspired by the most iconic Fabergé egg. It's called the Imperial Coronation Egg. And it's the one that is this bright yellow gold Mm -hmm. with gold crosses, just like this egg that we see in the movie, with little like emblems on each joint. I think what surprises me most about Fabergé eggs is that they are such a limited collection. Yes, the highest estimate is 69, but that is nice. a possibly as many as 69 were created. Mm-hmm. A number of them have been lost, which just intrigues me to no end. Yeah. If somebody put out a documentary, and this probably exists, and I'll probably go look it up, hunting for a Fabergé egg, I would totally be all over that. In fact, Wikipedia has a list of the eggs and pictures if they are available. There was one of them... The third imperial egg from 1887, it was found in a flea market in 2014. And then there was another one that was believed to have been lost. The diamond trellis egg was believed to have been lost, but then it was found in 2015 in the collection of the British Royal Collection Trust. So this is one of those things that was in storage in the museum and nobody knew it was what it was. Turned out to be a Fabergé egg. So I would totally watch a documentary about finding eggs and verifying that they are authentic right up my alley there must be so many knockoffs jeweled eggs that are not faberge yes because this is a certain aesthetic a certain opulence and luxury to the idea of a faberge egg and to own one is to be on the upper echelons of cultural society Mm. and many of these are privately owned by a guy by the name of victor veckelsberg probably Mm. not saying that right but he owns many of them and then some of them are listed just in private collection i'm looking at the same list that you are and it mentions the kremlin armory a lot the royal collection of london there's one in the cleveland museum of art yeah there's one in baltimore Okay. There are a number of them in the United States. There's one in Virginia. So if you or I, as Americans, wanted to go see them, they're not hard to find. All right. And hey, if you are in Baden-Baden, Germany, you can go to the Fabergé Museum, which is a privately owned museum dedicated to items made by the jewelry firm. All right. I think what surprises me most about finding a Fabergé egg or at least a jeweled egg in the style of Fabergé on the Mariner's boat, is that it is not broken. Because I always assume that Fabergé eggs are incredibly delicate. I think that that is 
the connotation of the word egg, mm-hmm. I don't think they're that delicate. I think some of them are. There's one of them that is like semi-transparent. Yeah. That I imagine probably is. But on the whole, I don't think these are delicate like an egg. Mm. I think they can withstand travel. Do you think in this world, in this boat, is that a real Fabergé egg? I want to say yes, that that is one of the few remaining instances of a Fabergé egg on this planet. I agree. I think it's more entertaining if it's real. If it's not real, then it's just a toy. (laughs) I think my belief that Fabergé eggs are more plentiful than they actually are stems from watching Batman the Animated Series, because in my memory, the villain of the Penguin was always obsessed with getting his mitts on Fabergé eggs because he's got a bird aesthetic that he's got to maintain. Oh, that's very true. If you have an aesthetic, especially birds, like wanting these eggs is perfect. I can't even say for sure that that happened a lot in the animated series. That's just how I remember it. <laughs> it's just it. in your memory. It happened a lot? Yeah. That'd be awesome if it happened once. If it was one plot point. Shifting focus away from the Fabergé egg to the wall stuff that Enola turns to look at. I think the main focus, at least where she's looking at, has to be the spear gun that the Mariner has. Mm-hmm. But he also has a lot of hooks and pulleys and what look like cleaver. Like, this is his utility wall. It is. This is the portion of his shop where he has a pegboard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hanging up on the wall and everything has a place and when you are in limited space like this being organized like that is essential yeah you got to use every available surface yep of all the things for enola to be drawn to the spear gun really it seems odd that that's (laughs) the thing she gravitates towards (laughs) because as we just finished talking about The Fabergé egg is shiny and pretty. Mm -hmm. There's the little toy piano and the little toy soldier. There are clearly toys that she has no interest in. There are other things I think she should, as a child, be attracted to. I think she's wise enough to know that that is a weapon. That's true. It's important to note where the weapons are. Yes. She is smart enough to know that they are in a precarious situation. She's not dumb. She may be a child, but she's not stupid. So, yeah. Okay, I'm on board with that. Is it time to go above deck? Oh, yes, it is. Let's do this. Meanwhile, on the deck of the Trimoran, Helen is threading her fingers through the Mariner's chest hair, and she comments that, You said so yourself. Been out here a long time. And that actually made me think of something called touch starvation. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, I have. I found an article from Healthline.com written by Lauren Sharkey. She's a journalist and author specializing in women's issues. She wrote this article about why touch is important. In fact, one of the first things it says, wait, this is a real thing? And she says, indeed, the condition seems to be more common in countries that are more increasingly touch averse. For example... France was found to be one of the most touchy-feely places while the United States appeared towards the bottom of the list. Whether this is due to a rise in technology use or fear of touching being viewed as inappropriate or simple cultural factors, no one is quite sure. But studies have found that missing out on regular human touch can have some serious and long-lasting effects. 
And the question is raised, does this apply to sensual touch? And she's like, no. Even stuff as simple as handshakes, friendly hugs, pats on the back can alleviate the feelings of touch starvation that you can have. Obviously, it does also apply to sensual touch, holding hands, back scratching, foot rubbing, things like that. But the importance of skin-to-skin contact relates back to how the body releases serotonin and dopamine when prolonged contact happens between two people in a healthy relationship. Walking up to someone and having a good firm handshake and a pat on the shoulder, an affirming touch can make the brain release those feel-good chemicals. Mm-hmm. When was that article written? This specific article that I'm reading was published September 23rd, 2019. Okay, so right before that came, became really, really important. Yeah. Because 2020 has been a no-touch year. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of people in isolation, and even people who are not in isolation, there's been a lot less touching. There's been a lot less skin-to-skin contact. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that suddenly has become a huge part of our society. The question is asked, how do you know if you're touch-starved? And she says, there's no definitive way to know, but in a nutshell, you may feel overwhelmingly lonely or deprived of affection. These symptoms may be combined with, and keep in mind, they may be combined. These are not surefire symptoms of touch-starvation, but feelings of depression Anxiety, stress, low relationship satisfaction, difficulty sleeping, and a tendency to avoid secure attachments. You may also subconsciously do things to simulate touch, such as taking long hot baths or showering, wrapping up in blankets, and even holding on to a pet. Pets in this article are pointed out to be an incredibly good source of contact because some animals are incredibly affectionate and want to cuddle up to you mm-hmm. and and the author says that there are certain things you can do to help yourself out if you don't have someone that you regularly come in contact with tips include getting a massage getting yourself an animal getting your nails done visiting a hair salon taking some sort of dance class like a tango dance class which is very physical mm-hmm. and the last suggestion which is i guess a new thing I've seen it before, going to a cuddle party. Okay, I think that has come up before. I can't really remember where I like heard of it, but that's not a new idea to my brain. Oh, I'm really not sure where that came from. And there are also professional cuddlers that are mentioned in this article. Interesting. Many, many of the things that you mentioned as substitutes to alleviate the distress of touch starvation are no-nos right now or performed in much less contacty ways Mm. like salons have opened back up by recording in the fall of 2020 by the time this comes out that's totally who the heck knows what status we will be in but at this point in the fall salons have opened back up my mom went to get a pedicure and there are some things that they don't do anymore because they're just too hands-on too involved too let me get in there and get your germs all over me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the downsides of recording so far ahead of time is we don't have the foresight to see, oh, how are things in February? 
when we're recording here in November. <laughs> Real quick side note, while we are on his chest, I want to just point out his necklace is a little piece of computer board. Yeah. Broken up and the edge is kind of rounded up a bit, a little hole poked, some string, and you got yourself a lovely little necklace. Something that you would not necessarily find anywhere else. No, it's probably very unique. And that bright green color definitely replaces some sort of crystal or jewel mm -hmm. and functions exactly the same way. All right. So question, his simple string and computer chip necklace, is it better than Helen's beaded necklace? Oh, well, that's an aesthetic question. That's really hard to answer. <laughs> and also, my first thought was, which one would I rather wear? It completely depends on what I'm wearing with it. Mm -hmm. I like both necklaces enough. I mean, I wouldn't go out of my way now in this world to acquire one of them. But in the water world, actually, I'm talking myself into choosing one over the other, where aesthetics are completely different and your options are much more limited, I would go with his necklace mm -hmm. because it has a pop of color. Yeah. Hers is all neutral because that's the materials that are available to her is all neutral colors. So I'd probably choose his. That's fair. There's a lot of tension here in this scene, but the director has chosen to cut away from it. We're going to drop back below decks, finding Enola messing with the gun. I'm a little disappointed with how easily it falls off the wall. Oh, yeah. It was not secured at all. It was hanging rather tenuously. But it is totally on brand for a kid to knock something off the wall and then haphazardly try to hang it back up again, as if no one is going to notice that it is suddenly, instead of being at the top of the wall, is now at the bottom. Right? Like, she does such a bad job of trying to put it back. She's a tidy person. There's no way she can reach it no, all the way back No, there's no there. point in trying. She yeah. can't put it back where it fell from because she can't reach it. Besides... In the midst of her trying to hang that gun back up, something catches her eye, and we cut to the familiar green and yellow color scheme of a 64 crayon Crayola box of crayons, which was introduced in 1958 and was the company's largest assortment in 30 years. And it is absolutely like the iconic box of Crayola crayons. I am, however surprised and suspicious i guess that the box held up mm. because Being made of cardboard and it glue. is like paper cardboard it is so thin it doesn't look like it's been submerged in water i wonder if this box of crayons was found maybe inside a plastic lunchbox and so when it was dredged up sure a little bit of water had gotten inside but it hadn't been completely submerged. I like that idea because we both know that paper and cardboard do things when they get wet. They get wrinkly. They get delaminated. And this has not happened. Some of the outer layer has been rubbed or worn off enough. Well, I was going to say enough that you can no longer see the Crayola name. But no, you can see that it is actually a Crayola box. Mm -hmm. They're not pretending they're not suggesting it's a crayola box you can't see the name and while i can't see the 
back or other side of this box, it is most likely this crayon box includes the built-in sharpener. Oh, that's the best part. Because you know those crayons, they wear down to nubbins. Yep. And you can't get those nice fine lines anymore. Nope. Enola opens up the box, grabs a crayon, and holds it up in front of her so we get a view of her face and the crayon. This crayon is a revelation to her. And at first, I didn't think much of it. But then I was thinking, and I realized she's always drawn with charcoal before now. She is always drawn in simple black. She's never had colors to draw with. There's a decent chance that some of these colors she's never seen before. This expression on her face as she's holding up that green It's not a, I hope this doesn't awaken anything in me. It's, this is actively blowing my mind and expanding the horizons of my thinking. (laughs) She may never have imagined that such a thing existed. That you could draw in the same colors that you see things in. Mm -hmm. Totally new concept to her. There's a lot to be said for people who draw in charcoal colors. Just the simple... Black, white, shades of gray. Mm, Yes, for sure. It's beautiful. And as Helen got older, that's probably how her drawing would have evolved. She would have started to incorporate shading and more realistic line work as she focused on realism much more than drawing what was in her imagination. Okay, well, that kind of brings up the idea of inspiration versus your own creativity. Mm -hmm. If she didn't have any examples of art, would Enola have progressed to that point? Oh, absolutely. Because when we saw Enola drawing earlier, she was drawing what she saw. She was drawing the Mariner hanging in a cage. And later on in this movie, we're going to see Enola essentially drawing the action that is happening around her. Her focus is all about taking the outside world and transcribing it down into a picture format. And so as she got older and her fine motor skills improved and her powers of observation expanded, she probably would have gone from stick figures and simple shapes to more complex curves and a realistic style. Unless they took that desire in her and broke it down and said, no, you have to be a little worker bee in this hive with no time for lolling about. Which, now that I think of it, the people on the atoll, with the way they were following around the Mariner, they had plenty of time to loll about. Yeah, there was an awful lot of sitting around that we were seeing. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the resource limitations, I'm not sure they could necessarily be solved by labor. They needed dirt or innovation. Side note real quick. Something that we've never discussed before is that there are other ways to grow plants aside from in dirt. Oh, you mean like hydroponics? Yes, which was brought up, I believe, last last week week by Liz. And we've never talked about that before, that there are other ways to grow things aside from in dirt. So their obsession with dirt is not required. Everybody is operating with the knowledge that they've grown up with. These ideas haven't come about. Okay, well, bouncing off of that... Innovation happens when not everybody in a society is required to do labor for food, mm-hmm. which in the atoll, they were no longer. Between fishing and whatever desalination things they had going on, they had enough food and water. So there were people just sitting around. Well, 
that's when other things are supposed to start happening, like arts and innovation and sciences and exploration. That's what's supposed to happen in society, and it wasn't happening. Do you suppose that if Gregor hadn't been focusing all of his time and effort on figuring out the tattoo, that he probably would have figured out <laughs> hydroponics? Yes, I do. <laughs> I think he was obsessed to the detriment of other things. Mm -hmm. To the detriment of the atoll. Okay, side note over. Let's get back to sexy time. This scene is not in the YA novelization. Oh, shocker. I am still several days out from receiving my full-length novelization that I bought on eBay. That is something that I mentioned in the weekly Patreon content oh so many months ago. <laughs> yeah. It will still be quite some time before you start hearing me referring to the full novelization that is not the YA version. The YA version, if we were covering that on this podcast, we would skip straight to Helen holding the Mariner at gunpoint. Okay. Do you think this scene of Helen offering herself to the Mariner is important to the story? It is, because it does come up later. It is directly referenced by the Mariner once the boat is burned. That moment is a moment of honesty and bonding between the two of them, mm -hmm. him referencing this moment. So it does serve a purpose down the road. In this moment here, they do learn something about each other. Yeah. I'm not sure how much that really helps in the short term in their relationship, but I think in the long term, it is helpful. A bit of behind the scenes stuff. Mm -hmm. I looked on the IMDb trivia page and I found an entry that said that Jean Triplehorn refused to strip for this film, even though she had done nude scenes before and would do them after this. She insisted on choosing her body double as she wanted the naked backside shown to resemble her own. She had three finalists come to her trailer and drop their robes. She described it as such an odd experience that none of them could stop laughing. In between takes of the nude scene, Triplehorn remained off camera to offer a robe or towel to the double. Well, that was kind of her. Yeah. Knowing that it's a body double, you can tell it's not Jean Triplehorn. The, the profile of her face? Yes, exactly. But if you're not looking that closely, it's an excellent body double. Yeah. I want to focus on the garment that drops from Helen. Oh Helen's my goodness. outfit consists of three elements. She has a pair of pants that pass below her knees, which I guess could be called capris. I don't know. I don't know what women's pant types are called. Anyway, pants, a dress made of netting that we see drop off of her, and a bodice that covers from her waist up to her shoulders. Three parts. When we cut from Enola back to the Mariner and Helen, we're looking at Helen from behind, you can see the strap from the bodice is still over the netting dress. She could have removed the pants while we were down with Enola underneath the deck. So I don't so much complain about those. But when you cut from her putting her hand on her shoulder and pulling the dress away, and then the dress completely falls off, the bodice is now completely disappeared. We've got a case of disappearing clothes. Oh, we do for sure. It's done in service of providing the opportunity for the dress drop. Mm -hmm. Because you don't want to have to watch Helen bend down and mess with the pants and undo the bodice. You want it to be one fluid motion. Right. Undressing is not graceful and it's not sexy. People who do it professionally in a dancing format 
they aren't wearing real clothes. They're not wearing real clothes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason the phrase let me slip into something more comfortable exists. Right. If you want to do it sexy, you go to another room, take off your regular clothes, put on slinky clothes <laughs> that then allow you to do a drop. <laughs> and also thinking about classic sexy scenes where the camera is following the trail of clothing that's being stripped off as people are making their way to the bedroom. Yeah, there's a reason we're seeing the clothing already taken off because the act of taking it off is not sexy, is mm. not attractive. I wonder about Helen's choice of layering in this movie because, as I mentioned, the pants are underneath the net dress, but the bodice is over the net dress. So that netting material that we see in the drop shot is against her skin from the waist up. And where it's textured the way it is, I certainly hope that it's softer than it looks because that is against her skin all day. Right. I think she ought to be having imprints on her skin from that netting pattern. That netting dress does seem to be an aesthetic choice. Mm -hmm. It is not necessary. It doesn't provide anything for her. Perhaps it is meant to be an undershirt type thing, that it is to be between the bodice and her skin on purpose, but that doesn't seem to be better than the bodice on her skin. And I'm pretty sure the bodice is made out of the same material as the pants, and the pants are right up against her skin. Yeah. So maybe having the netting there, it offers a bit of leeway, wiggle room. <laughs> I really like how this scene plays out. Helen is standing there naked as the day she was born, and the mariner slowly lifts his hand, and I think think he's about to make contact hand to breast and Helen grimaces. Now, frankly, this tells me that the art of foreplay has been completely lost to the inhabitants of Waterworld. For sure. Because he's acting like a teenager who has never seen a bare breast before. We recently watched the movie Big. Mm -hmm. And there is a scene there where this 13-year-old who suddenly finds himself being a 30-year-old <laughs> is... Engaging in foreplay with his girlfriend, and he's touching her breasts in the same way that the Mariner is touching Helen's breasts. Very unsure, but also really excited, mm. but trepidatious. And I think they're both doing that in that way for the same reason, that this is something that they have either never done or it's been a very long time since they have done. The girlfriend in that movie... That was Elizabeth Perkins, right? Yes, Elizabeth Perkins. Thank you. Which playing, you pointed out looks like a grown-up Millie Bobby Brown. And I was like, Susan. oh my gosh, it is. I have to wonder if Kevin Costner saw Big in 1988 and said, that is how I will play the Mariner. Right? Because it's exactly the same. <laughs> Her grimace, I don't like it. Mostly because I feel bad for him because she is grimacing directly because he is touching her. Mm -hmm. And... I know she's doing this voluntarily, but not really voluntarily. She's at the end of her rope. Yeah. She's got nothing left to bargain with it's except this. a desperate this. act. So I don't think this counts as consent, which is his point. Yeah. Later on, way down the movie, when they're talking about this moment, that's his point, is that she didn't really want to do that. Mm -hmm. And so she flinches, and so does he, because 
he sees that she doesn't want to be doing this and he really gets that point. And so he stops. Yeah. And there's this moment where she lifts her chin, trying to gather her courage and she lets out this little like meep. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And the Mariner seeing that switches gears. He steps away and he points out that a couple of hours ago, back on the atoll, he was potential dirt. That's all he was to the dwellers there. And Helen points out that not all people are like that. And he fires back and says, no, you all are. And he admits that he was really thinking about dropping both of them off the side of the boat. And he follows that up by saying, you got nothing I need. And we get this close up on Helen as the Mariner pushes past her and how devastating it must be to realize that you literally are powerless in a situation with someone. Her jaw is dropped. Her mouth is open. She's like, what the hell am I going to do? She already played her last hand, her most desperate act to offer herself to him. So she has nothing left. It figures that Helen would throw her lot in with the one man on Waterworld who isn't swayed by sex. Yeah, right. (laughs) We can't necessarily say that Helen has exhausted all of her options because as she gathers her dress off the deck, she looks over to the side and, oh, look, a spear gun that she picks up and points at the Mariner, who seems rather unconcerned. This totally reminds me of an extra on an episode of Law & Order They're being questioned by the detectives, and they've got boxes to move. So they're just going to keep on doing what they're doing. And the Mariner here, he's being held at gunpoint. But you know what? He's got a project that he's working on there at the helm. So he's not going to give her the satisfaction of being scared or inconvenienced by her maneuver. Yeah. The closing line of these two minutes. I don't know why, but I love it so much. Where she's like, you're taking us to dry land. And he just responds with... Killing's a hard thing to do well. It is so true and perfect, and it's a perfect way to end two minutes. He's not done with the statement. There is a second part to that sentence, Mm -hmm. but it cuts off right here, and it's perfect. This line, killing's a hard thing to do well, is something I would expect to hear in a Mad Max film. I'm a little surprised we have never heard it. Right? (laughs) We've never heard anything even like it, like the same sentiment? Not that I can remember. I don't think so. Which means it probably did happen, and I just can't remember it. (laughs) That wraps things up for this week. Come back next time. We will see Helen defeated by Fabric. The Mariner will climb the mast for some alone time. And we will finally get a glimpse of the smokers on the Ds. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tuohy, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMinute. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 30. See you next time. 